This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A few hours before a gunman attacked Orlando's Pulse nightclub last weekend, the club sent a tweet to promote its theme night, calling all our Latinos, Latinas, and everyone that loves a little Latin flavor. By Sunday, the names of Latinos dominated the list of 49 dead. Dave Montez has thought a lot about the intersection of being gay and Latino in his personal and professional lives. He's executive director of One Colorado, an LGBT advocacy group. He previously led the Latino Initiative at the Denver-based Gill Foundation. And uh, Dave, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me and and for covering this really important uh, uh, piece of this story. I don't think it's been talked about enough. You grew up in a Hispanic family, and you tell a story about your grandmother when you came out. Would you share that story with us? Sure. You know, my grandmother was the typical uh, Latina Catholic grandmother. She carried a veil in her purse because she wouldn't go into church without a veil in her head, on her head. Uh, and I was about, I don't know, 13 or 14 before I realized that fish came in any other form than fish sticks because we would have fish sticks every Friday, not <laughs> not just during Lent, every Friday. She was definitely not a Vatican II Catholic or a cafeteria Catholic, for that matter. Um, when I was younger, some of my happiest childhood memories are going to Mass with her. And we'd go to Mass, and and she'd afterwards explain to me how what I had just heard applied to my life as an 8-year-old, as a 9-year-old, as a 10-year-old. Still, some of the moral teachings that guide a lot of what I do today. Um, so obviously, uh, when I was 16 and, and my family found out that I'm gay, she was not very happy about it. Um, she um, didn't talk to me for many, many months, uh, about six months, um, no communication at all. So not only am I dealing with uh, the, the very small town that I grew up in finding out that I'm gay, I'm dealing with all of my family and my grandmother, for all intents and purposes, my best friend, also finding out and not being happy about it. Someone you spoke to probably daily then didn't speak to you for months, you say? That's right. About six months, uh, we didn't talk. Uh, Probably the darkest six months of my life, for sure. Um, Lots of depression, uh, lots of angst, um, lots of really trying to figure out um, what to do. And so about six months later, she called me and said, you know, I really need you to come and, sp- and talk with me. And so I'm on my way to have this conversation with her. And I, you know, my stomach is in my throat. And I'm fairly certain at this point that she's going to um, uh, disown me and, and sort of uh, let me know that I'm no longer welcome in the family. And so I get there and I sit down and and she says to me, you know, I've prayed a lot about this. And I think that if you can be the best person that you can be in every other aspect of your life, essentially become a priest, this will not keep you out of heaven. And it took me a minute to really grasp what she was saying to me. And I realized, okay, I can work with this. This isn't complete and total rejection. There's middle ground in some regard. Exactly. Um, You've set the bar pretty high, but I, you know, definitely not complete and total rejection. So for the next 16 years, we rebuilt our relationship, I think, much stronger than it had been before because she knew all of, of who I am. Um, but she'd never met a partner or a boyfriend, and uh, a few months before she, uh, a, a few months before she passed away, we got the call. It's time to come and say your goodbyes. The doctors haven't given her much longer, and so my boyfriend at the time uh, and I uh, went to visit her. He said, "You know, I know she's very special to you. I would love to meet her before she passes away." And I thought, "Why not? Um, what do I have to lose at this point?" And so off we went to see her. 
And because she was so religious, she was one of those people who was never mean to anyone. To, to people she liked, there was this warmth that, that came from her. And to everyone else, she was just polite. And so we get there, and she gives me a big hug. It's so good to see you. And she's just polite to my boyfriend. And I thought, oh, no. Uh, what, what are we doing? What have we, what have we done? Um, and so for the next few days, we'd be uh, making her dinner, uh, sitting with her talking. And I'd catch her watching my boyfriend and I out of the corner of her eye. And I kept wondering, what is she thinking? What's going through her mind right now? And so the last night we were there, and uh, I was sitting next to her on the sofa, and she called my boyfriend to come over and sit next to us. And she held our hands separately for a minute, and then she put our hands together, and she kissed them, and she started crying, and she said to me, I understand that this is love, mijo, and all I have ever wanted for any of my grandchildren is for them to know and experience love. And it was a, a moment for me that really changed my life. I mean, I don't, it, it was what Oprah calls a full circle moment, you know, and, and I, I often wonder um, what life would have been like had I not had that moment of full and complete and total acceptance. Are there things about the Latino community, um, and, and I want to ask the question both ways, that make it more difficult to come out and to be gay, and on the other hand, easier? I'll start with easier. Um, I, you know, we there is a very strong family and familial tie in the Hispanic and Latino community. We don't turn our backs on our families, um, and I, and that was evident. Uh, I think in in the story that I just told, um, my gra- my grandmother for her the Bible was the word of the Lord, um, but yet she still managed to find a a, a path. Um, uh, uh, toward acceptance. It took her a while to get there, um, but she still found it. And I think that it was because um, we don't turn our backs on our families in the Latino community. Um, I think that um, it's machismo is, is very prevalent. Uh, this notion that men have to act a certain way, there are very clear uh, gender uh, um, roles uh, for men in, in the Hispanic community and Latino community. And and that makes it hard. It makes it hard to deviate, to go outside of that box. Um, definitely uh, um, a barrier. You know, I think that, that religion can go either way. Um, I think that, that definitely with this new pope, um, we're seeing a lot more signals of acceptance uh, in the Catholic faith. Uh, but certainly that hasn't always been the case. Uh, and so I think that... Um, I, You'd be surprised how many Catholic priests I, I, I hear from who say, we're pulling for you, we, 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 we care about your community, we absolutely want to see a day when, when uh, LGBT equality is completely and totally accepted. Um, but that's going to take some time. And so I think that, that religion can go both ways. You are listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Dave Montez. He is executive director of One Colorado, the LGBT advocacy group. And we're talking about the intersection of being gay and Latino in the wake of the attack on the Pulse nightclub in Orlando uh, on a night, a theme night, a Latino theme night. I, I want to ask about being um, Hispanic in the gay community and to what extent there is acceptance or a lack thereof within that community. Yeah, it's it's a great question. I there what's interesting is I am one of a handful of 
um, uh, executive directors of mainstream LGBT organizations who are also who are not white. Um, and so uh, I think Latino LGBT people um, sometimes struggle to see themselves within the broader mainstream um, LGBT culture. Um, Senator Ricardo Lara, a great friend of mine from California, um, said it best uh, on the floor of the California uh, um, State Senate just a couple of days ago that we are a minority within a minority um, and that, that, that it sometimes is difficult uh, when you look around the room uh, with other executive directors who are, who are all white um, to find your place uh, within the broader uh, LGBT mainstream culture. And what effect does that have on you? Um, you know, it, it definitely binds us all, like the, the few of us who are LGBT um, and, and, and African-American or Latino, definitely binds us together. Um, we definitely um, have a, a um, special connection, I think. Um, and it, it, it sometimes can get a little lonely, um, Though you know, I, I I have found acceptance uh, within within the LGBT um, broader mainstream culture. Um, a lot of executive directors uh, through this reaching out, uh, asking how I'm doing. Um, Deb Pollock, the CEO of the LGBT Community Center, uh, has been an incredible in Denver. In, here in Denver. Uh, the the organizers of Pride Fest has been an incredible confidant and, and shoulder to cry on through this entire process. Dave Montez, have you given thought to what it must be today to be Muslim and gay? You know, I I have given a lot of thought to what the Muslim community must be going through right now. You know, the day after this happened, um, the, the, the following morning... Um, the heads of most of the um, mosques in Colorado came together to denounce uh, what had happened and to express their, you know, um, their their solidarity with the LGBT community. Um, and they invited a few of us uh, here in Colorado, LGBT leaders, to come to the Muslim Community Center. And they were so kind to us. They were so gracious. Um and and that my my one of my key messages has been that we absolutely cannot let this um, drive a wedge between the LGBTQ community and our Muslim allies. But for the people who are both LGBTQ and Muslim, um, I imagine that um, there is a lot of hurt um, and a lot of sadness, and um, and a lot of questions about safety, um, and and. Uh, one Colorado is is here to to serve all members of the LGBTQ community, and so if there are any LGBTQ Muslims listening, please reach out. Uh, there is a home and a place for you at One Colorado. I think there are a lot of people trying to define what happened in Orlando um, and and put words on it. I think it's natural to want to call something something. Is it a terrorism? Is it a mass shooting? Is it a hate crime? As details have emerged about the shooter, um, how are you perceiving it today? And and let me say that motive in mass shootings is often elusive for months or years, precise motive. But what, what do you make of it today before we go? Well, here's what we know. We know that this happened in Pride Month, in, in, in a month that is, that is uh, an opportunity and a time for the LGBTQ community to come and celebrate 
um, its uh, its successes. We know that it happened in an LGBTQ nightclub, which has historically been ha- nightclubs have historically been the only safe place for many many LGBTQ people. There are places where we've organized. There are places where we've found family. There are places where we have found acceptance when there was nowhere nowhere else that we could. Um, and we know that it was a direct attack on LGBTQ people. We cannot let that go. We cannot let people sort of brush that over. This was an attack directly at the heart of the LGBTQ community. Um, I, I, we don't. We won't know. I think, like you said, for months, what what the motive was behind it. But what we do know is that it was attack in our in Pride Month. It was an attack on a nightclub, an LGBTQ nightclub, and it was a direct attack on the LGBTQ community. Thank you for being with us. I'm sorry it's under these circumstances. Thank you for having me. Dave Montez, executive director of One Colorado, an LGBT advocacy group. When we come back, Colorado's crackdown on payday lending inspires the federal government. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Payday lenders come under a lot of criticism for keeping people in debt. It's basically a recycling symbol for human misery. It's the circle of debt, and it screws us all. Comedy host John Oliver there. Colorado actually overhauled how it regulated payday lenders in 2010, and federal regulators would love to achieve some of the same results. They have proposed new rules to crack down on the industry nationwide. So what exactly did Colorado do? Here to answer that is Mark Ferrandino. He was Democratic Speaker of the State House at the time and led this overhaul. He's now CFO of Denver Public Schools. And a welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan, for having me. Now, first off, John Oliver paints a dark picture of the payday loan industry. But, you know, it does give working class people access to credit. Isn't that a good thing fundamentally? It is good to give people access to credit. But I think he's exactly right. And what I always said was, It is uh, instead of giving people access to credit, you're giving people access to debt and debt when you can't pay it off and just puts you in a cycle of debt that actually increases your chance of bankruptcy is not helpful. Um, There was a Republican senator or representative from North Carolina when they were debating a bill in the legislature to regulate payday lending, and they actually banned payday lending, I believe, in North Carolina, said, you don't give a drug addict drugs. You don't give people access to unaffordable credit that they can't ever get out of because it just is um, hurting instead of actually helping people deal with situations. Yeah. So that was the problem you were trying to address in Colorado back in 2010. What were examples of what you heard that you were trying to reverse? Yeah. So the issue was a working class individual. And remember, all these people have bank accounts. They couldn't get a payday loan unless they had bank accounts. So everyone had jobs. They were working class individuals, a lot of women, when you looked at the demographics. And they would go in and take out a loan for two weeks, usually about 300 to $350 in that loan. And they'd pay somewhere between 50 and $75 in fees for a two-week loan. But come two weeks, Um, passed when they owed the money, they couldn't actually pay off the loan. So the uh, loan, the payday stores would say, just take another loan out and just pay another 50 to $75 in fees. And on average, uh, the, the individual would pay about eight to nine of those fees 
Um, so somewhere in the three hundred to five hundred dollars for a three hundred and fifty dollar loan. That that's not even including the principal that they would pay in fees. So they're paying somewhere north of three hundred percent APR. That is not. Uh, something that someone can get out of, especially working class individuals, even anyone. It just is ridiculous. The rates, when I talk to friends, they're like, you know, the mob never even charged that high (laughs) of interest rates. (laughs) Uh, All right. So Colorado's solution was to set a maximum interest rate. It actually is not the lowest in the country by any means, uh, because you, you... went for other avenues. Yeah. So it took three years. I started this the first year I was in the legislature in 2008. We finally passed legislation in 2009 by the thinnest majority, one vote in each chamber. Um, And we had a compromise. We put a 36 percent interest rate plus some fees. So where before the law was in effect, uh, the average rate inter- APR was in the 300s. Now it's in the mid 100s uh, when you take all the fees into account. Okay. We also changed it from a two-week loan to a six-month loan. And that was critical, Yes, was it not? That was hugely critical. So now every month people have to pay some maintenance fees, but they're nowhere near what the cost was of rolling over the loan every two weeks. And so that was a a significant change in the dynamics of payday loaners to give the consumers much more power because they were the ones who could then decide when they had the money to repay the loan. All right. An independent analysis by Pew Charitable Trusts looked at the laws and found that Colorado had made payday loans more affordable, had reduced defaults, and kept people out of long-term debt, all without killing the industry. So that's an independent analysis here. Uh, And it sounds like that was achieved through taking the the middle road after compromise. Uh, Last week, the federal government proposed its new regulations for payday lenders. Uh, Many, like Pew, thought the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau should look to Colorado's legislation, your legislation. So uh, did the feds take from this playbook? You know, the unfortunate thing is in the legislation that set up CFPB and where their powers are, they can't do exactly the same things we did in Colorado. It's not apples to apples. Exactly, because they're restricted in what they can do. However, when you look at what they're trying to accomplish uh, and looking at the ability to pay. So one of the things they're doing, one of the biggest requirements is now before you take a loan out, you have to look at someone's income and expenses to see, is this more than 5% of their income and can they actually pay this off? That is, is, when you look at what we did in Colorado, most of the Pew looked at that 5% is probably what we were able to accomplish, that now you're not taking a loan out more than 5% of your income, and that is a sweet spot that you need to be in. And so it is very much in line with what we were trying to achieve, different methods to get there. They still have a ways to go with the rule, I believe. Um, They exempt the first six loans from actually that 5% requirement of income and expenses, which is a loophole, I think, uh, that is needs to be tightened up. What we've seen in payday lending reform across the country is if you don't really have strict, tight regulations around them, they will find ways around that regulation to continue to keep people in a cycle of debt. Let's talk about the industry in Colorado today. Did these laws shrink it? It, it did not eliminate the industry again. That was not your intention. Or it, was it? 
going in, um, what I wanted to do was 36% interest rate with a few fees, much less than where we ended up. Uh, and I was fine if they couldn't survive on that and that it was just a cycle of debt that they would go away. But, um, you know, I think we found a, a very good spot where the industry has shrunk significantly. So businesses have closed. Businesses have closed. But when you were when we were past the bill, there were more payday loan stores than Starbucks in the state of Colorado. That does not seem like a good idea to have more payday loan stores than Starbucks. That has shrunk significantly in number of stores. Now, most of the stores who survived are some of the bigger stores that are national chains and also have multiple um, lines of businesses. So they have cash checking and other things. So they're not just dependent on the payday loans as their only source of income. So by diversifying and shrinking, the industry still can provide cash at a much more reasonable rate. If you look at what the Bell Policy Center has done, and they've been, they were a big advocate on the legislation and really helpful. The We have saved over tens of millions of dollars for consumers in Colorado since the passage of the law. And what do you, what do you think of these mom and pop businesses that closed? You know, unfortunately, um, sometimes you have to think about the consumers and the people getting harmed by those consumers. And those shops, when you looked at them in the data, their turnover rates for staff was high, you know, 100% a year turnover in staff. These were in long-term, high, long high-paying jobs, uh, and they were hurting the individuals that they were selling. Even we had one of the reasons we were able to pass the bill, a manager from one of the stores who finally came out and testified against the, the horrible tactics they used to trap people in the cycle of debt. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Mark Ferrandino helped regulate Colorado's payday lenders when he was Democratic Speaker of the House, and his legislation has in some ways become a model for federal regulators. After a break, bluegrass bassist Edgar Meyer from Telluride. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A virtuoso is how the New Yorker has described bassist Edgar Meyer, who returns to the Telluride Bluegrass Festival this week. This is Tarnation from Meyer's 2014 album with mandolin player Chris Thiele. They are frequent collaborators. Meyer has played Telluride for decades, and he joins us by phone from his hotel there. Edgar, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Great to be here. Over the years, you've played Telluride in a lot of different uh, formats, I guess you could say, as a solo act with Chris Thiele and also with the Telluride House Band. It's really a who's who of bluegrass, that band, Bela Fleck, Sam Bush. Um, What is it like to reunite there each summer? Um... It's like a family reunion. Um, you know, I um, attended the festival for the first time, I think, in 1983. It's the same summer that I met my wife um, as a student at the Aspen Music Festival. And um, so um, a lot, of, I guess a high percentage of uh, a lot of the people that are closest to us attend the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. So... And at this point, you know, people like Chris Thiele were seeing their, you know, their one-year-old, his one-year-old kid. Huh. Or Bela's got a two-and-a-half or three-year-old kid these days. And so 
uh, it's an intergenerational thing, and the audience is that way also. Uh, people have been coming uh, for 30 and 40 years. You said that you've been playing since 83. Do you remember much about that first year? Not much, because I, you know, Bela dragged me down, and I was coming, I was, you know, at, as a, I was a student at the Aspen Music Festival, and uh, and I sat in on a Vassar Clement set along with Sam Bush and Jerry Douglas and Bela, and the um, um, main thing I remember is that Vassar threw us a tune that had um, so many uh, dark alleys that I'm not sure that I got one uh, chord change correct uh, in the whole song, or if I did, it wasn't intentional. <laughs> what What is a dark alley? Explain that concept. Well, I, I guess there's, it was a song that didn't have a lot of symmetry or regularity. It, it was a long medley with many, many parts, and they were all quite different. Huh. And it was tough to find yourself as a bass player in that. Well, uh, impossible. <laughs> I, it, I, I would have needed to be much more familiar with that exact piece, and maybe with his repertoire in general. But it was, a, it was still a fun introduction, and uh, and then by 1985, we actually were... Um, the band that became Strength in Numbers actually did a set that year, and that was a, a whole different a whole different business. As we've said, you've worked a lot with mandolinist Chris Thiele, who will also play Telluride this weekend. Um, here's another track from your 2014 album together. The song's called Why Only One. So I read that you, as a bass player, prefer to play in duos or small groups versus orchestras. Why is that? Um, I, so I can hear myself, I think. Um, it, I get, you know, I, I still do a lot of work as a soloist, and it was certainly, at age 22, it was how I kind of regarded myself. And then... I really kind of fell in love with playing in small groups. I liked the dialogue and, and thought it was just more interesting. But uh, I wanted to keep, um, I wanted to remain, you know, a really active and uh, essential part of the dialogue. And the larger the group gets, the more you have to kind of uh, submerge yourself into the fabric. And that's just not really what I want to do. Hmm. And I think you started by saying you can hear yourself better. There's just. Uh... Less to yeah, compete. no, I can, um, and even when accompanying, which I would, you know, be doing, uh, you know, at least half the time, uh, with a smaller group, there's room for that accompaniment line to have melodic contours that are more interesting, and uh, and also more interesting rhythmically. You can just do more. There's more room, um, and as you add the add more instruments, um, each person has to, you know. Uh, stop a little of what they're doing to leave room for the next person. If if they're a kind musician, I guess, they they could still try to hog the stage, but it doesn't sound like you would do that. What do you like particularly about the combination of of bass and mandolin? Well, I like the high and low. Um, You know, uh, bass in terms of its 
frequency response overlaps guitar a lot. And so the two are really fighting for some of the same space. You know, in a traditional string band, I mean, what you end up doing is that the, the bass simplifies its role and goes low. Um, like a big man in basketball, in a sense. Uh, you know, a, a more uh, narrowly defined job. And I probably am more excited about trying to go after, what's the fellow's name? In the, yeah, Anthony Davis. Uh, uh, just a, a broader definition of what, what the big instrument can do. And um, and so with the mandolin, you don't just, it, you have, it's completely out of the, the ranges don't overlap that much. And you also have the contrast of the bow and the pluck, which is, um, adds a lot. Um, whereas, you know, my son is a violinist and we've been doing some duos and which is wonderful. But since I tend to spend most of my time bowing and the violin is, you know, almost exclusively a bowed instrument, it's just not quite as much, um, variety in the textures. And also, you know, with the mandolin as opposed to the violin, it's, uh, it's a cording instrument, so that also, and the bass not so much. So, um, once again, they complement. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with bassist Edgar Meyer, who's a fixture at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. I might also jump in and say it's also just a matter of who plays the mandolin. When you have people like Sam Bush and like Chris Thiele, um it's the size of their personality and accomplishment, uh, and it wouldn't matter what instrument those guys played. <laughs> it could be, if, could be fact, nose, you nose. ought to hear those guys play some of the other instruments. <laughs> they could play nose kazoo well, I suppose. Uh, songs, from uh, your, yes. songs from your albums with uh, Chris Thiele also include Monkey Actually, The Ald Beagle, and uh, this one, Ham and Cheese. so right about the complement of those two instruments, but I understand that you have an interesting system for naming songs, Edgar Meyer. Tell me about this naming convention. Um, I, there is no name. I don't. I actually don't know necessarily what you're referring to. I can. Uh, I can tell you from my pers- you know current perspective about what happens. Sure. Um, I've never. I've never been great at naming songs, and uh, you know, Bale is pretty good at it. He's occasionally lent me a few good ones. And uh, at some point, well, Sam and I, we just started to, he kind of encouraged me, and basically most of the titles really refer to things that are truly unmentionable. And we just, you know, change one word or uh, use initials or or do something, and it kind of keeps the whole thing as a big inside joke, and it keeps us amused and keeps a lot of people wondering what's going on. (laughs) Okay, and... Would you care to lift the veil, perhaps, on ham and cheese, or is it too untoward? That one, that one is, you know, is public. Although it's still, you can feel the snarkiness. Um, the uh, that song, you know, it really operates in a couple of keys simultaneously. It's unusual, you know, for a bluegrass inflected song in that, you know, it really is. You could almost call it polytonal, and. Um, the, really, the idea for that came from a Norman Blake song. Um, I can't even remember the name of it. Let's see if my son is here. He'll know it. 
he's not here. Okay. I don't remember the name of the song, but Norman wrote a great uh, fiddle tune that really exists in two keys. And um, so, and there's a famous story of Norman and Tony Rice arriving at a gig, and um, um, and Norman got up on stage, and there was a pretty substantial smell, and Tony kind of looked at him, and Norman looked back at him and said that, um, well... Uh, Tony, there was time for a shower or a ham and cheese, and I chose the ham and cheese. <laughs> and that's what the smell was coming from. All right. Yes. I want to ask about well, um, the bass, which is, of course, a large instrument. And I understand that some bassists will borrow one on the road, but you prefer to travel with yours, uh, which for music nerds out there is a Giovanni Battista Gabrielli bass built yes. in, in Florence in 1769. What is it about that bass that uh, that sings to you? Um, yeah, there are a lot of things. It's a smaller instrument, you know, and it's not as deep as a larger one. And, you know, and, and really the repertoire that I play is primarily designed around the instrument, but it's um, it has a very clear voice, uh, it has a very easy response, and um, it just has a clear and beautiful sound. Um, Have you ever forgotten it anywhere? Maybe once. Uh, I mean, not for long, but yeah. I might have <laughs> left a restaurant once or something. Uh, but it's very rare. I mean, I, so many people talk about leaving their violins and cellos and cabs. It's, it's doesn't happen as much with the bass. Yes, it's it's large enough that you spot it. How is it to fly with? Uh, expensive. Oh, do you have to buy a seat? Um, you don't have to buy a seat for it, do you? Well, I, I get three coach seats or two first, and it is it's just um, the instrument is irreplaceable, and so I would certainly, you know, stay home long before I would uh, put this instrument um, underneath the plane. Hmm. Does it fit through the metal detectors? Not these days. It used to fit through about half of them. Um, so there's always a, a hand check, and I have to leave plenty of time to deal with all that. Um, yeah, it, that, that can be challenging, especially coming in and out of the country. In 2002, you received a MacArthur Award, uh, also known as a Genius Grant. This was shortly after you released your album, Bach, Unaccompanied Cello Suites, performed on double bass. The album highlights the bass as a, a solo classical instrument, which is, is not commonly done. Am I right about that, Edgar? Uh, it's not really commonly done, but um, I guess anybody, you know, not anybody, a lot of the people who study classical music on the bass, which is certainly how I grew up, um, um, a component, I mean, I think one of the ways you really learn is is playing solo repertoire, yeah. even though it's not something that many people are going to do a lot professionally. And uh, even for playing in the orchestra, um, it's just a good way to kind of, um, it's motivationally better than kind of, you know, tying yourself down and saying, well, this is my job and I'm going to work on this. It's um, like I teach at the Curtis Institute of Music and uh, we encourage the students to develop themselves in, in all manners. Um, you know, and, and as creatively as possible, and 
you know, you don't want to learn just how to do your role. You want to, um, if I'm playing with somebody, uh, I want them to be a great accompanist and a great soloist. Edgar, thanks um, so much for being with us. <laughs> okay. It's been lovely to talk. I wish we had more time. That is the renowned bassist Edgar Meyer from a hotel room in Telluride. He plays the Telluride Bluegrass Festival this week. Coming up next, a renowned building in Denver turns 50. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A masterpiece of modern architecture is how Steve Turner describes the conservatory at the Denver Botanic Gardens. It's that really recognizable geometric building. Turner leads historic preservation for the state, and he joined me at the gardens as that building turns 50. Steve, thanks for meeting us here. Great to be here, Ryan. I really appreciate the invitation. This building, which is officially called the Betcher Memorial Tropical Conservatory, opened in 1966. It's the only greenhouse in the country, I understand, made of cast-in-place concrete. And uh, we're standing outside, I'll say, because the fans that help keep it so hot and humid inside are awfully loud. Uh, But describe this building for us. You know, it's the bones of like a dinosaur or something like that. It's these fairly complex, beautiful structure. It's made out of concrete because the primary donor, the Betchers, made a lot of their money in concrete. So ah, this was a made self-serving, maybe. Right, right. <laughs> so this was made in concrete to celebrate the fact that these were folks who made, as I said, made their one of their fortunes in concrete. And uh, there's kind of an interesting story there. Betcher was uh, really the original money was in sugar beets, and he was building a sugar beet factory and decided that the cost of importing concrete was just entirely too expensive. So he started his own concrete factory. And one thing led to another, and he was highly successful in that also. That is to say, if concrete is too expensive, make your own. Exactly, okay. exactly. And so there, there's concrete, and then that, that web-like structure leaves a lot of space for light to come in. And right. is that glass? Is it plexiglass? It's, what is it's that? It's plexiglass. And the, uh, the interesting thing is one of the things they had to do is they built the framework. And when you build in concrete, the first thing you have to do is you form it You've kind of formed the negative of what you're trying to build out of wood. And you then pour the concrete in there and the, into the wood frame, and it will harden. And uh, the architects were talking about when they first built this, people actually thought that the greenhouse was going to be made out of wood. They didn't realize that they were just looking at the framing. But they finished that, and then they came in, and they had to form the plexiglass panels. And they had to wait till they were completed because each one is slightly different, and each one required really a custom measurement of the form once it was put in place to make the plexiglass panels exactly the right size. You can see a photo, by the way, of this at cprnews.org. And maybe you remember this building from the 1973 movie by Woody Allen, Sleeper. It was filmed in and around Denver, and uh, there's a glimpse in that film. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that I think people maybe don't understand about our architectural heritage here in Denver. We have this incredibly rich heritage of modernist buildings. And so when Woody Allen was getting ready to do Sleeper, his original desire was to actually go to Brasilia, the capital of Brazil, which is a very, very modern master plan city. But budgets sort of interceded and they decided they wanted a more affordable locale. And they ended up here so that they could use what's become known 
known as the sleeper house, the well-known house you see as you go out to the ski areas on I-70. This building, IMPA's research lab up in Boulder, a number of those buildings looked to Woody Allen, what he imagined the future would look like. And this was absolutely one of them. And, I and in 66, when it opened, it must have just been out of this world. Oh, I think it was immediately recognized as the true landmark it is. I think that's evidenced by the fact that, in fact, in 1973, just seven years after it was built, it became a Denver landmark. That's highly unusual. Usually, huh. we wait 30 to 50 years to be sure we really understand the architectural significance of a particular structure. But in this case, it didn't take very much time. People right away said, this is going to be an important piece of architecture for years, and we want to protect it. The architects were Victor Hornbein and Ed White. What should we know about them? Well, they are probably two of the most significant contemporary architects that we've had uh, that have practiced here in Colorado. There are really interesting things about both of them. They had sort of different tracks in life. Victor Hornbein started out doing very sort of traditional kind of what's called Beaux-Arts architecture. In fact, he worked for the architect that did the Mayan theater, doing some of the decoration that you'll see in that theater. Which is Over, a, has a very heavy decorative hand. Absolutely, absolutely. Unlike this building entirely. No, there is some. Once you walk into the building, you do see some really beautiful decoration carved into some of the concrete work. But this is a very minimalist modern building. And I think part of that came from in the 19... 19- 30s, Victor Hornbein worked for the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, mm-hmm. and worked specifically under a architect named Earl Morris. And Earl had been a student of Frank Lloyd Wright, and I think he really introduced Frank Lloyd Wright's sort of architectural philosophy to Victor, and Victor became this great student of it. In fact, uh, I'm not from Denver. When I first moved to Denver, I saw one of Hornbein's building, which is the Ross library down on Broadway. And I thought immediately, this has to be the building of someone who studied under Frank Lloyd Wright. Ah. And it, it was interesting to me to learn that, in fact, he never did study under Frank Lloyd Wright. But he but was certainly influenced. Absolutely him. influenced and adopted his style. And uh, I think really mastered this sort of organic philosophy that Frank Lloyd Wright brought to his architecture. Do you see Frank Lloyd Wright in the conservatory at the Denver Botanic Gardens? I see a number of architectural influences in the conservatory, but especially when you come into the front and you see some of the horizontal planes of the buildings that are attached to the conservatory and some of the complicated geometric ornament, that really is Frank Lloyd Wright. In fact, I would argue that the form that you see, the concrete itself, is really complex, very sort of organic geometry that would have been something that Frank Lloyd Wright would have completely understood and probably would have done himself had he been designing this particular building. Well, Victor Hornbein died in 1995. He was 82. Ed White Jr., his partner here, is still alive at 91. And uh, just say a few Mm -hmm. words about Mr. White. I think part of what made this collaboration so successful is they really brought very different skill sets to their collaboration. Victor was this really masterful designer, and Ed White was too, but Ed White also had this incredible 
interest in historic preservation. And so many of the things that we take for granted here in Denver today, Ed White was really sort of at the forefront of in helping us save a number of historic buildings. He worked on the Molly Brown House. He worked on the uh, saving a number of the buildings up at Central City. So he both understood and I think valued contemporary architecture, but also really appreciated the past. Mm. One of my favorite things, though, about Ed White is Ed went to Columbia University, and while he was there, uh, he had the occasion to be introduced to Jack Kerouac. And I think one of the most interesting pieces of trivia about Ed White, uh, he convinced Jack Kerouac that he needed to come see Denver. And so, so Jack, <laughs> Which he did, as we know. Exactly. So Jack Kerouac came out here, had a number of adventures with Ed White. He ends up going up to Central City. They rent a house there that they live in for a while. He borrows a suit from Ed White. They go to the opera. They do a lot of drinking. They do all the things that are described in the book. And ultimately, uh, on the road. In the book, On the Road. And ultimately, Ed White makes an appearance. He is in the book under the name of Tim Gray. And I love that Ed White became mm. Tim Gray. I yes. just think that's just White kind of a great... Gray. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, it's just an amazing thing to think about this connection. And they continue the friendship well into Kerouac's death. And there are, I think, about 90 or so letters showing correspondence between the two of them. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we've come to the Denver Botanic Gardens to gaze at the conservatory here. That's the geometric building that houses all those magnificent tropical plants. And we're learning that it has ties to Frank Lloyd Wright and Jack Kerouac and Woody Allen, and the list goes on. Steve Turner, you're the state's chief preservation officer, and I should point out that your office has awarded grants to the Botanic Gardens to help preserve this conservatory. What are some of the challenges of preserving this unusual building? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges is literally the material that it's made out of. This is not like if you're repairing an old Victorian uh, house that has an ornate wood porch and you might knock out one post on the porch and replace it. This is concrete and plexiglass, and these are materials that you can't just knock a piece out and put a new piece in. It's all of a piece. It's of a piece, exactly. And so what the Botanic Gardens is going to be doing over the course of the next year is working with an architect to come up with exactly what needs to be replaced and what needs to be repaired. And then they will be working on conserving some of the concrete, which is deteriorated, as well as some of the plexiglass that has uh, holes in it, in part from a hailstorm last year. One of the things, again, that I think was interesting is is Hornbein wrote when this building opened that one of the advantages of building it out of concrete was that that was a maintenance-free material. What we've learned uh, in is a there's short really 50 no such years, thing exactly. Is there? Is <laughs> there is no such thing as a maintenance-free material, and like all other materials, uh, there's some work to be done to ensure that this will be here 50 years from now. Well, at the risk of disparaging it, it looks a bit grimy, and you it, know, maybe yes. that's the nature of a building that has a lot of plexiglass. I think about you know how dirty my bathroom mirror gets, you know, and this is exposed to the elements. Do you think it's worn well? You know, I still think it has worn well. I agree with you that it it needs to be cleaned. As I look at it, I do see some staining. I see what may be, in some cases, some of the metal, the iron rebar that's inside the concrete rusting out and kind of uh, staining through the concrete. But this building, to me, uh, is one of those buildings that everybody that sees it loves it. I don't think anybody looks at this building and inherently thinks there's a building that 
doesn't look well maintained. I think people love the design. I think what it has done maybe better than almost any other modern building is it is an extremely approachable building. Mm. You know, that's part of the challenge, I think, with preserving contemporary or modern structures. People can look at Victorian houses or, or things from the turn of the century and they're, they're just, there's no way to describe them other than just say they're kind of warm and fuzzy. You just want to go up and give them a big hug. Normally, people look at modern buildings, and it is, it's not unlike modern painters who would have painted abstract expressionist paintings. Some people get it, and some people don't. And, and some people and, associate it with being cold. Yes, exactly. Or, yeah, exactly. Or institutional. And I don't know anyone that looks at this building and doesn't just kind of fall in love with it. And I think that's even evidenced by the fact that it literally, the the silhouette of this building has become the logo for the Botanic Gardens. You look at the logo mm. of the Botanic Gardens and you know exactly what it is. It's this building. It's just so unique. You're in love with it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks so much for being with us. Take care. Steve Turner is the State Historic Preservation Officer. We spoke at the Conservatory at the Denver Botanic Gardens, which turns 50. Finally today, we'd love to know if you've been enchanted by a waterfall in Colorado. We'll speak tomorrow with a travel writer who's visited lots of them, and we'd love to add your spots to the list. Email news at CPR.org. News at CPR.org. Do go chasing waterfalls. I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio. (laughs) 